I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. This episode, a conversation between Catherine Rundle and Alice Spools, is a recording of a recent event at the London Review Bookshop. Catherine Rundle has just won the Bailey Gifford Prize for her biography of John Donne, Super Infinite. But here she's talking to Alice Spools, co-editor of the LRB, about her latest book, The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure, a bestiary of endangered animals that began as a series of pieces in the London Review of Books. Thank you. I thought for, well, both for readers of Kate's pieces in the LRB and for people who perhaps don't know them yet, we could start with a piece that's new to the collection, so a treat for everyone. And Kate's going to tell us a little bit about the elephant, our favourite pachyderm. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, I won't read the whole thing because it's a little bit longer, but I'll just read the beginning. In 1870, the Prussian army laid siege to Paris. Its defences were formidable, so rather than fighting, the Prussians, led by Wilhelm I, chose to ring the city round with a blockade and starve its people into submission. The hunger made Parisians both desperate and inventive. A rat, smoked and dressed with spices, could fetch two francs while a cat might be worth twelve. A luxury grocer, owner of the Boucherie Anglaise on the Boulevard Haussmann, approached the zoo his eye on the two male elephants. A deal was struck. For 27,000 francs, Pollux and Castor were sold. Because nobody had experience in slaughtering elephants, a marksman was hired to shoot them with steel-tipped explosive bullets. They were skinned and sold at staggering prices to Paris's richest citizens. Henri Labouchere, Oh, wait, he's English. <laughs> Henry Labuccia, um, an English politician and theatre owner and author of The Diary of a Besieged Resident in Paris, wrote, Yesterday I had a slice of Pollux for dinner. Pollux and his brother Castor are two elephants that have been killed. It was tough and coarse and oily. I do not recommend that English families eat elephant as long as they can get beef or mutton easily. The trunks of Pollux and Castor, the tenderest part, were sold as a delicacy for 40 francs a pound. The famished citizens who ate them were, unknowing, consuming a marvel. An elephant's trunk is a fusion of the upper lip and nose, freighted with 40,000 muscles. We have about 650 in our entire bodies. What looks like it must be an unwieldy and erratic kind of appendage is, in fact, under the elephant's calm and supremely confident control. With its prehensile tip, the African elephant can pluck a single blade of grass or lift 350 kilos or swing a man into the air. They're 2,000 olfactory receptors. Bloodhounds have a paltry 800, mean they can smell water more than three kilometers away. 
A small group of African elephants have been trained to sniff out landmines in Angola. Faced with deep rivers, elephants can use their trunks to snorkel, wading and swimming underwater with the tip held carefully aloft. And it's the trunk that allows them to give their great wild trumpetings when scared or aroused or spoiling for a fight. <laughs> Thank you. I think we could read an entire book about the <laughs> elephant's trunk. <laughs> you make us wonder at all the marvels it's capable of. Um, but we could go back to your very first in this series of extraordinary animal pieces, which I think was the pangolin. Can you tell us about your first encounter with a pangolin? Um, so this was a long time ago, about five years ago. Um, maybe more. Long time. Maybe seven, maybe eight. <laughs> a, a long, many years. Um, I, I went with a friend in Zimbabwe, which is where I spent part of my childhood, um, to a wildlife reserve where they had largely rescued elephants, but also one pangolin who was no longer capable of walking the distance between uh, the, the termite mounds that was necessary. So instead, she was carried in the arms of her keeper. So we went to meet a pangolin. She, she is carried from mound to mound, and she lives in his arms all day or in his backpack. And when she wants to be lifted into his arms, she comes and puts her front paw on her, his foot. So she is not wholly wild, but she is wild to any other human. He is the only one who she is willing to touch. And the thing about seeing a pangolin is, I'm sure all of you know what they are because you're here <laughs> on purpose, um, but they are scaly anteaters, so they look they look extraordinary. They look prehistoric, which they are. They are the colour of, of a, a sort of stormy sea. And the book says they have the face of an unusually polite academic, which they absolutely do. And the thing about seeing them is to be in the presence of a pangolin is to think that all other forms of the things we have been told to cherish, you know, Rolex watches and jewels and gold taps, are a con. They make it so manifestly clear what is the only true treasure. It is that which lives. And so I got back to England and I was telling some friends about the pangolin and the main response I was getting was, what's a pangolin? A lot of people mix them up with echidnas. They're not similar. Um, and so I wrote to the LRB and said, could I write a piece about pangolins? And uh, Mary Kay Wilmers, who was then the editor, said, um, yes. Uh, you could do maybe four columns a year. Um, she said, any more than that, we might feel swamped by animals. But that, that would be about the right amount. So for the next few years, every about four or five times a year, I wrote an essay about, about something living and endangered. The criteria for inclusion in the book, half of these are from the LRB and the other half are new. It just had to be that one of the animals is a species or a subspecies that is endangered. And brutally, there is almost no living thing in the world now for which that is not the case. So, especially any mammal, you, if anyone has suggestions, there will be a, a subspecies that, that is in danger of vanishing. So, so it was partly out of love and partly out of a sense of imperiled wonder. I think one of the sad and wonderful things about reading the essays has been the sense of this great 
your great curiosity and wonder, which the reader then shares, and the sense of this vast richness, which is sort of trickling through our fingers. When you talk about the hermit crab, which is a remarkable essay and a creature that most of us have not spent too much time wondering at, you say that there are more than a thousand species, everything from the smallest to ones that are almost a meter across, they're jeweled, they have these intricate, very intricate behaviors and lifestyles, and yet they can destroy a carcass of a pig in minutes and may have eaten Amelia Earhart. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so they inspire some mixed feelings. <laughs> this is the thing, I guess. So with the hermit crabs especially, there is a theory that Amelia Earhart, when she crash-landed um, on an island in the Pacific, uh, and we never found her body. And so the question of where it was, they found some human bones they were sent off to be uh, checked and analysed. They got lost on the way, and there weren't enough human bones to make a full body, so the question was, where were the other bones? And um, they came to the conclusion that almost certainly they had been crunched to fragments by coconut crabs, which are they are spherical, about the size of the table, but, but maybe, maybe bigger. Um, and then, of course, the smallest hermit crabs could sit on your thumb. And so the book also wants to offer a sense of, of, of the non-obvious delights of the world. You know, I, I would not want to meet a coconut crab in the dark, but, <laughs> but I am grateful for their presence. I am endlessly grateful for their presence, for the, for the, the sort of wildness and unlikeliness of, of the living world. And, you know, hermit crabs are very much part of that. The fearsomeness of some of the animals in the book is part of what has made them attractive to humans. The essay about the bear is quite sad for its story of bear baiting and the desire that humans have had to see animals fight and fight to the death and not quite to the death. But you connect that so well to their beauty. Is that something which all these animals share? Some of them are very mild, but they all have some habits or behaviours that we might find repulsive, if not outright scary. I think exactly that. So, so much of... If you think of what has made us hungry for living things, our hunger for living things tends to be one of the things that imperils them. Human hunger, not, not necessarily to eat them, but a, a generalised hunger. Uh, for ownership, for dominion. Um, and of course, one of the reasons that we so coveted the bear was there is something in us that longs to see that which is larger than us stand and roar. We long to be in the presence of the fearsome and, of course, then to see that pitted. So the bear baiting in, in the Elizabethan era, we, we know quite a lot about those bears they would fight over and over, almost never to the death. These bears, because they were so valuable, they wouldn't be allowed to fight to the very end. And so they became like uh, celebrities in London. People knew them. One of them was called She-Boss. Um, one of them was called Samson. Uh, and they would be allowed to fight to like, being almost mortally wounded and then stopped. So it was a kind, of, a kind of cycle of barbarism. But one of the reasons that we were so compelled by them was their size and and their threat in the same way that we have been compelled by wolves because they have offered us powerful metaphors for, for, our, for our own hunger. They offer us a way to think about, about our own cruelty and our own sort of um, furies. There are some amazing fairy tales about wolves. One of them is called Ivan Zarevich and the Grey Wolf. And in it, 
there is a wolf that transmutes into a princess and then later, in some versions, in the older versions, transmutes back into a wolf at the wedding and eats some of the guests. Um, and, and so, you know, the kind of vertiginous quality of the way we've been sculpting these animals into our lives. There was a paragraph in the book that I took out, and I'm quite glad I did, because it said, I changed it. We always say fairy tale weddings. A fairy tale wedding is when Kate Middleton married Prince William. You know, it's, it's the elocution of an institution in the form of large dresses and horses in hats. But of course, that's not really a fairy tale wedding. A fairy tale wedding would be when our true desires vertiginously arrive, often in the shape of animals, and present themselves to us. So the book says it would be a fairy tale wedding, would be one in which Prince Charles turns into a wolf and eats the queen. Um, and I, uh, I, I cut that because I thought, I thought it would be a little bit on the nose if. If, if the book happened to come out at around a time where that would be in bad taste. Um, so I'm, I'm quite glad I did. I probably shouldn't have told you all. Um. Well, perhaps he's the Prime Minister too. <laughs> <laughs> One of the lovely things in the bear chapter is this myth which was held true for centuries by the sound of it, that a, a bear cub was licked into shape by its mother, fashioned a bit like a Michelangelo from this unformed matter into a perfect little bear. And then it, you have a brilliant, um, well, is it brilliant actually? It's maybe not John Donne's best poem ever, <laughs> but there's a bit of John Donne, your great subject, talking about this bear, and then it's all ruined a century or two later by Thomas Brown. Oh, Thomas Brown ruined so many things. He, in laying out the actual, you know, one of the first great scientists laying out the actual facts of the animal kingdom, a lot of that work was refuting the myths that had previously existed in a way that was just enormously killjoy of him. This, I'm gonna read you just this bit of Dunn. The book has a surprising amount of John Dunn in it for a book about animals. As anyone who knows my academic background, I, my PhD of my first nonfiction book were about John Dunn. So he just leaks out into, into everything I do. So Pliny believed that a bear cub is born a mass of undifferentiated flesh and its mother licks it into being and shapes it in so doing. And probably what they were witnessing was a bear biting the placenta sac from around a bear cub. So it would have looked like a, a blob arrived and a mother's mouth brought it into being. So it's not insane. Um, and people genuinely believed it. It wasn't believed with a kind of ironic wink. It was believed as a fact of natural history. Um, John Donne wrote this bit that says, it's, it's in one of his love poems, and about the idea that in our love, we can so fervently overlove each other that we destroy each other. He says, love's a bare whelp born. If we o'erlick our love and force it new strange shapes to take, we err and of a lump a monster make. And, um, and then Shakespeare, and a lot of people of Shakespeare's period, so this was not an original idea, use the idea of a kind of um, half-formed bad idea. Like, nay, I think he has not licked his whelp into full shape yet, which I think is a really great insult that one could use of <laughs> many people on the public <laughs> stage. Um, I, I love these ways that we have tried to explain often with painstaking care and often with generosity, the natural world to each other. And then uh, Thomas Brown debunked it um, in the 17th century when he said, this opinion is not only vulgar and very common with us at present, but it is, it is entirely untrue, he says, and um, had been of old delivered by the ancient writers. So he's blaming, he's blaming 
the past. Um, but he says it's repugnant both unto sense and reason. But I think, I think you know, that desire to, to look at a living thing and make a wild leap of logic is, is very rich in us. And I think one of the things about this book, it does say, we got so much wrong. The book is in some ways a litany about what we have been mistaken about. You know, that hedgehogs did not roll in grapes and then run with the grapes on their spines, like sort of 70s cocktail waiters, to a, a, a nest which some people thought were up trees. That didn't happen. You know, Pliny was wrong. Um, and, and giraffes are not made by breeding a leopard and a camel and a hyena and a cow, because that would be very stressful. Um, oh, very fun. But, like, <laughs> but, you know, we will have as much wrong now. You know, uh, the things that we are certain about, we are, are, there will be smaller gradations, perhaps, in, in, the, in the wild leaps we are making. But, but I think it's something worth holding tight to, that we are making so many mistakes still, that we will need to have humility, even as we build our, our brilliant and formidable knowledge, that humility is going to be important. Well, you're a very generous reader of the past. You're generous to your readers because you have synthesized huge amounts of esoteric and arcane and wonderful things. But you're also generous to the earnest curiosity and the desire, I think, of naturalists, explorers, all sorts of people who observed animals and recorded what they saw and tried to make sense of it. The narwhal, for many years, seemed to... It's understandable that the horn might be thought to have special properties, but there was this test you could do, right, with spiders. Tell us about that. So, um, so people believed way up until the 18th century that the narwhal was a kind of sea unicorn, which was not insane because the unicorns are mentioned nine times in the Bible as a factual entity. And they were believed to, they were used in the French court to test for poison. They were believed to sweat or change color in the presence of poison, so they would be hollowed out and used as goblets. But then Ivan the Terrible, when he was dying, called for a unicorn horn to be brought to him and to test its efficacy. He, he drew a circle with it around spiders, and the idea would be that the spiders would, would not be able to cross the unicorn circle by dying, and it didn't work. And... Um, <laughs> And he said, alas, it is too late, and then he died. Um, so, so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't efficacious. But, you know, it, these, kind of, these kind of errors, so much of the time when we were seeking out knowledge of the living world, we did it by destroying it. And I think, I think one must not be over-generous. We, we must acknowledge that, like how much knowledge has been based on, on destruction and hoarding. But also... Also, people were devoting their lives to trying to find out about the world, and I think we can learn so much about ourselves now from what we believed, about our desires, about what we were longing to be true. Often, why did we want that to be true is an interesting question. There's a fine line which you tread so expertly between enjoying those myths, those stories, having our own humility, and not not allowing them to have too much sway when we consider how damaging they are today. So it's quite funny to read about the, the vogue for bear grease and the desire of, was it Elizabethans? To pomade their hair with authentic bear fat. But it's sort of something else to learn, as you say in the book, that the bile 
of a bear is a $2 billion mm. industry and yeah. is, in fact, efficacious to some degree? Yes, so almost all of the long-term treatments that we have devised from the most exotic animals, those are largely a con. They tend to be around the question of the aphrodisiac, um, and we tend to associate aphrodisiac properties, even with things that are penises, or that look like penises, or that are in some way associated with reproduction or hyperfertility, um, or that we associate with rareness, like uh, tiger parts and rhino horn, which it's to do with the kind of the quality of unattainability. But bare bile is actually efficacious um, in the treatment of, of various ailments, especially kidney stones, and it is a staggering amount of money in this industry is so billions and billions of dollars. Some of it in legal farms and some of it, most of it in illegal. And so it's one of those questions, how does anybody coax the world out of using the animal kingdom, the parliament of the unhuman, as if it was laid out for our delectation and use? You know, it is the great lie. You know, the greatest lie we ever told is that the world is ours and at our disposal. The reason it is the greatest lie is it is the lie with the power to kill us all, to finish us off. And that lie, I think, is something that we are negotiating our way through now, haltingly and too slowly. One of the things which is so striking when you read the essays consecutively is that for thousands of years you have classical writers, you have early medieval Muslim explorers, you have Victorian naturalists, for all these writers, the animal world was huge, teeming, overfull, and dangerous, full of beasts. And it struck me how different that is from our present sense of it. There, there was no scarcity mentality. I think that's the yeah. phrase. There was abundance, there was animals for the taking, and humans needed to, to keep them at bay. It's very different now. Yeah. Almost impossible thought. I'm sure so many of you saw the report that came out last week about the idea that about 70% of the world's wildlife has been decimated in the last 50 years. When my grandparents were young, there were as many hedgehogs as there are pigeons. They were as common as pigeons are now um, in the countryside. I've seen like three hedgehogs in my life. The fact that people who live in Greece, who are in their 70s and 80s, who report swimming in the sea when they are children, and seeing a kind of fish life that is now just unimaginable. Like, the, the whittling has been so fast. And of course, in cities, it's harder to notice it, because cities have never teemed with life in quite the same way. But it's something that is difficult to maintain in one's imagination without crumbling but one that I think we's, there is a, a moral duty to hold in our imagination as we make our life choices. It's very present in the book in your pieces about the sea, I think. The seal cubs mm -hmm. who must be so carefully nurtured, protected and taught and who, whose um, parents can't speak to them now because the noise underwater is so loud. I think you say they've gone from silence to a sort of 80s yeah. nightclub but as well as our pollution and our destructive instincts, there's also the knock-on effects of our behavior. Yeah. So exactly that. So in the sea now, I can't, I'm, I'm aware so many of you know this, but it is so loud now that many, many creatures that require on calls and echolocation are finding that very difficult, sometimes impossible, things like narwhals, dolphins, and then seal pups 
the amount of energy necessary to create a litter of seal pups, to create a, a colony of seal pups, is absolutely colossal. The, the work that the mother has to undo, because um, the amount of fat they need to produce to produce milk, because human milk is about, I think it's like, what is 5% fat, and seal milk is 50% fat, about the consistency of mayonnaise. And then, of course, um, global warming, climate change, means that the ice is melting sooner and sooner. And in 2017, an entire colony of seal pups drowned overnight because the, the ice melted. And, you know, so much work to produce so much life gone in a few hours. It, it was rare in 2017, and it's increasingly not rare now. The change is happening so fast. It's one of the things... I very much don't want the book to be depressing because I want it to be a salute to the idea that so much still remains and is so worth fighting for, that, that the glory of what lives is colossal. But you cannot do that without also acknowledging the precarity of that which lives, I think. I don't think anyone who reads the book can be depressed. You don't let us rest in our depression for a minute. There's much too much of the sort of humour we might not expect from a book about animals or a book that might be read about children. I think you, you relish some of the destructive and humiliating and bizarre aspects of especially the human encounter with animals. And you wrote a wonderful piece for the LRB on Saki, and he's a great influence, I think, on some of these essays. Do you agree? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I once wrote Saki, the, um, the playwright and short story writer and poet who died in the First World War, who wrote these very odd, vertiginous, strange stories, satires mostly, on humanity, on our, on our greed, on our like, pettiness, but also they have love and passion in them. And he was a man who was known to love humanity very greatly. He was posh, but refused to become a, an officer in the war. He wanted to be with his men in the trenches. And he, he was a, I wrote a play about him um, that went to America. And I think the thing about him was that he had this sense that so many people I admire have, John Donne being another obvious one, of both love and dread. Like, he was not ignoring the quest towards power, the quest towards dominance, the quest towards extraction of, of, of other people's humility. But he also loved so much of the world in a way that Dunn did to the late, great Hilary Mantel. I didn't know her well, but once we were talking about John Dunn and she said, well, he was her favorite poet because of that love and that dread. I think that's what I admire in Saki and in Dunn and, and it's sort of what I want to have in the book. I want it to be largely jokes and beauty, but it wouldn't be honest if there wasn't a little bit of dread. I realize it's not a very good pitch to be like, buy it for your grandmother for Christmas, <laughs> but I still think you should buy it for your grandmother for Christmas. Well, we should tell readers, listeners, audience members who don't know that Saki wrote these wonderful animal stories yes. in which humans quite happily transform my favourite is Laura, who becomes an otter in order to annoy her best friend's husband, who she can't stand. But there's a kind of um, absurdity about them that's very cruel, but it also relieves the reader of feeling too bad about what happens. And you do something very similar and very effective in the book, which is that we are all 
part of this destruction, but we don't have to feel bad about it on every single line of every page. I wanted the book to, to, to accumulate. I wanted it to be that if you read the whole thing, you would have a sense that, my God, we have, we have laid waste to a lot. And we have, been, we have been foolish and we have been unwise. But that also, there is still space for, for delight and for jokes. Marilyn Robinson has this wonderful essay where she says, what if we were to believe that our failures were human just as our cities and our joys and our jokes are human? She says, I would be honored to follow Martin Luther King and Susan B. Anthony anywhere, even unto extinction. I am honored in the cunning of my hand. If what we have seen so far is all there is, we are the universe's greatest marvel. And I love her for that. I'm not sure I would go so far as the hierarchy that implies, because I worry that the hierarchy is one of the things that has got us into this mess. But I love her sense that we too are a great and telling and powerfully glorious marvel. So I wanted that in the book too, that, that we're not just destructive. We are many, many great things as well. And I want them both in, in the book. And we as human beings are often far sillier than the animals that we yes. encounter yes. And, and claim to understand. I think about Rossetti and his wombat, <sighs> let alone Byron <laughs> and his bear. Right. I mean, so Dante Gabriel Rossetti famously adored wombats. In fact, when you all get home, please do look this up because it is amazing. He drawing these beautiful little wombats. One of them was often taken out by a, a female friend of his and he's drawn a picture of the wombat on a lead and both of them have halos and both of them look furious. And, and he wrote poetry to these wombats. He would keep one of them during dinner parties, he had an enormous silver tureen, and he would just lift his pet wombat into the tureen and hope it stayed there during dinner. Um, he, he loved animals. He um, famously was said, I don't know, this might be apocryphal, everyone said it, but I just can't see this being true, that he trained a toucan to ride a llama, I, I don't know, um, <laughs> that he wanted to buy an elephant for his house in Cheney Walk, but it, he decided that it wasn't economical because uh, people were charging, I think elephants were expensive that year. Um, and, and you know, these, these ways we have, we have been made giddy by our love. Um, and Byron, who famously had a bear in his rooms at university, and when he was asked, what do you plan to do with it? He famously did it because he wasn't allowed a dog, and he thought a bear would be a, a, a good riposte to that. And he wrote a letter to a friend saying, when they asked me, what will you do with the bear? He said, I suggest it could sit a degree. Um, <laughs> you know, these, these adorings, like the giraffe, when the giraffe first came to Paris in 1810, the first giraffe that Europe had seen since the, um, since the Medici days uh, the, in 1400, um, people went giraffe mad, genuinely giraffe mad. They, women were fashioning their hair into these upright hairdos to mimic giraffe ossicones and giraffe necks. Some of them were so high that they had to sit on the floors of their carriages because, because otherwise they wouldn't fit in them. You know, um, people were, were, were painting their skin with giraffe spots and wearing giraffe dresses and we have been unhinged in our delight by the living world, and I, you know, I want to salute that. The giraffe is a slightly sad one, though, also, isn't it? Because oh. I think you say in the book that 
the US refuses to recognize giraffes as endangered. Is that right? Yeah. So there's still a very large market for giraffe skinned. Yes. So there are 64,000 giraffes left in the wild, a 40% drop in the last couple of decades. The Namibian giraffe uh, has had a drop of about 95% in the same time. Um, America refuses to designate them endangered. There, that has been consistently put to Congress and, and in a bid to be renewed and will be renewed again soon, so we'll see how that goes. You can buy a giraffe head cushion with the eyelashes still on, a floor-length giraffe coat, and a giraffe skin Bible if you wanted to prove to people that you're an asshole, um, <laughs> you know, in, in a swift shorthand. Um, so, so these things do still exist, and so often it is that those who have the power, so often these are systemic problems, and structural change can largely only be made by those in power. So part of the answer, of course, is to believe in politics again, because this is a political change that would have to happen. Because yes, we could stop people wanting giraffe skin Bibles, but there will always be dickheads. And so we do need people <laughs> to, to create systems that are better than the worst of us. That is the thing we will have to start believing in. I realize this week in politics hasn't been like a <laughs> great <laughs> argument for that, but we will have to believe it. One of the comforts, I think, of reading the book is that we are allowed to indulge our own acquisitiveness when it comes to animals. You had your moment with a pangolin, <laughs> thinking how nice it would be, better than jewels or handbags. And I was reminded reading it of these books I loved as a child. I don't know if other other people have read them, the Willard Price books. Willard Price. Yes. Oh. About these two brothers. Were they Hal and Roger? I think they were. I think Talia knows them. Talia yeah. knows them. Oh. And they go around the world collecting animals for their father's zoo in somewhere in America. And it, was the, it wasn't the hunt, the chase, and the kill, but it was the acquisition, the rarity, mm. and the magic, and the being able to take it home and say, this is my snow leopard. Yeah. We don't yeah. ever quite grow out of that. No, exactly. It was it w oh, those books. They had such power on the childhood imagination. I read them when I was like eight, and I was mm. obsessed with them. And of course, it was so much of their power was was it was the acquisitive my. It was the possessive. You know, it wasn't just that they were catching the snow leopards and the tigers and the you know various monkeys. It was it was that they then belonged to them, because that goes very deep in children and in adults. That's the thing that we're going to have to put in the iron-willed political change to shift that. And children's books are full of it, aren't they? I mean, Philip Pullman, every, every character has a, a, a daemon which is an animal. You know, the idea yeah. that we have a spirit animal goes deep in myth and yeah. it goes deep in children's lore yeah. as well. And makes sense because, of course, the flip side is that we need children especially to be close to nature. We, I mean, we need them to have access to and knowledge of and first-hand knowledge of the living world because you cannot be intoxicated and enchanted by something you don't know. And we need them to be intoxicated and enchanted. And so we need to be able to offer children access to the living world. And it's so hard now and gets harder and harder as we encroach on green spaces. But I do think it has to be a priority. I think especially Childhood is a bewildering and opaque place to live. And I remember as a kid finding one of the few moments of clarity in my childhood would be in the presence of living things, in the presence of like, dogs and cats, but also because we grew up in Zimbabwe, you know, the odd monkey that might come into the garden and, and the hyraxes. And, you know, we, we need to find ways to offer children access to that kind of shine.
so that they will want to protect it. I don't think you could have written this book if you grew up in London. <laughs> <laughs> I think those hyrexes played a part. <laughs> and the pangolin. Um, do you have a favourite among the animals in the book? Is that a question we're allowed to ask? Um, I think my favourite animal, when people say, you know, what's your favourite colour, what's your favourite animal, I do tend to say a pangolin. They do look prelapsarian. They look too good for our fallen old world. So they, and the fact that when they curl up, they, I mean, it's a disaster because they run themselves like portable, um, but they, they look so perfectly neat. And when they're, the pango pups, they're called, um, they ride on their mother's backs. And then if afraid, the mother rolls around the pangolin pup. So like, like nesting dolls of pangolins. Um, and I find that so beautiful and evocative and so rare. So I think they are my favorite. And I also love swifts. And, you know, they, they, for the same reason that um, it was Hughes who wrote that poem about saluting when they come back, you know, the summer's still to come. That feeling that they, they are the herald of light. So I, I love them too. And the fact that they, it is possible, rare but possible, for a bird not to land its entire life because they, they fly without stopping for about 10 months of the year. But sometimes the young ones continue flying for a full year because they don't stop to nest. So very rarely there are cases, especially, to be honest, if, if they die young, where a swift launches and never lands, which I think is an amazing thought. You quote Hughes in that essay right at the end, but actually I think it's the one which has the most beautiful language of your own. There are so many compounds. <laughs> is it sky? Is it sky washed or yes, sky washed? <laughs> yes, they are worthy of Jared Manley Hopkins. <laughs> I was quite entranced by. Is it the wombat that has its pouch upside down? Yes, the wombat. Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Unlike a kangaroo whose joey can sort of pop out of the pouch at the belly. The wombat's pouch is upside down so that when the wombat's digging, it doesn't fill its own pouch with earth. Right. It's, a, it's an amazing piece of evolutionary genius because if they were to dig, they would fill the pouch and, and the joey would, would drown. Um, so instead, the joey, its head pokes out between the mother's legs, essentially, as it walks, which is both amazing to see and, as the book says, does make it look like it's in an eight-month state of labor, um, which explains why it was a kangaroo that got to be in Winnie the Pooh. I mean, it's very <laughs> funny. And, you know, just like the part when you tell us that if a, if a lemur was the size of a human, mm. this is a male lemur, its testicles would be the size of grapefruits? grapefruits yes. That's big enough, right? Yes. They would be, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely a, grapefruits. A, a subspecies of, of lemur. They think it's probably, a, again, it's an evolutionary quirk to do with... Um, sexual dimorphism and selection. So the bigger the testicle, the more likely they were to breed. So they breed larger and larger testicles. And now these lemurs, they don't themselves have testicles the size of grapefruits, but if you were to scale it up, um, they would have two each the size of a grapefruit, which is a remarkable thing to see. You, you should Google them as well. They are, they are, they are amazing. <laughs> There's lots to Google <laughs> and YouTube after reading this, I think. We probably could open up to some questions if anyone has one. I think we might also have some questions from people who are listening at home. Uh, thank you, and a wonderful, really wonderful talk. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the way it seems to me we've aestheticized the natural world. And so there's a whole category of animals, our cats and dogs, who are cute. 
and therefore we go to enormous lengths to keep them alive. And there are animals which aren't cute, like snakes or spiders. And I wondered, therefore, between John Donne and now, if you'd been able to track shifts in those aesthetic categories. That's a really interesting question. So I think you know, the desire for the elegant and beautiful has certainly always been with us in that, and for the aesthetically glamorous. If you look at the history of, uh, perhaps one of the easiest ways is of um, gifts between rulers from 1200 onwards, the things we have exchanged have always been the most beautiful things, and, you know, bears, giraffes, and there has been a... I think increase, even from fairly early on, a presumption that it might be possible to breed the most aesthetically covetable forms into being. I think in terms of like our, our desire to, to, to create the cute, to create dogs that can't breathe but look enchanting, again, I think that has always been with us. But I think it is probably uh, accelerated by our capacity and indeed by our watchedness of, of this generation, of, of the last 50 years of the internet. Um, I also think it's really interesting just to think about the ways that the ways we conceive things do influence the world. Like in the way that, for instance, the way pastoral poetry from this 15th and 16th centuries imagined the farm as a space of like symbolic retreat and greenery and lushness, you know, Spencer's Colin come home again, this vision of, you know, the, the pastoral England was entirely disingenuous. Like farms are places and always have been largely of, of production and of death and fields are, are rarely places of the kind of luscious biodiversity that these poetries have been imagining their, their maidens walking through. So, so this kind of sanitization that we have been undergoing in our poetry, you know, it has, it has kept its hold on us, I think. Um, so, you know, in the very long list of things we can blame for the moment we are here, um, like Spencer is definitely on the list, blame Shakespeare. Uh, well, I was just wondering, when you were writing this book and doing all this research, and you know, finding all about these facts of nature we have destroyed, if when you were writing it, you thought, I have to make this positive, but in the sense that you know, the, it's going to be a published book and it's going to be you know, editorial, if, if you dealt with that, like thinking, this has to come out, you know, both beauty... I mean, you already mentioned you, you want to, to put the beauty and both the well, the damage we've done. So if, if, you have, if you had in mind about this... Um. It was something I thought about a lot. How much, how much horror can we take? I think, so every, every I mean, it, it, they're, they're small essays, but every essay always has, always, a salute both to beauty and rarity and wonder, and wonder is a kind of political a political and iron-willed cherishing that will need to take place at a kind of national level, that kind of wonder. But also, it always acknowledges what we are losing and how fast and why. One of the things that I thought about a lot was whether or not I should add at the end a kind of what you might do about this page. Here are some suggestions. And I wrote one, and I didn't put it in, and I, don't, I still don't know if that was the wrong idea. I spoke to a lot of scientists in building it. But it's partly, we know. We know what needs to be done. We know both at the individual level. We all know about 
about consumption and energy use and flying and meat. We all know these things, but we also know at a political level. You know, we know that the thing we need to do is, is elect those who believe in climate change. Um, and me telling people to do that, if they don't already believe it, are unlikely to take that step. So, so in some ways, I wanted, instead of having a final, here's a suggestion for what to do, I instead end on a, a real-life fable of, of the Sibylline books. The Sibylline books are real books that really existed. Uh, we don't have them anymore. Um, and it's a retelling of the way they were offered to the last king of Rome. Uh, they've been rewritten about. They became a kind of fable in the Victorian period. Aulus Gellius wrote about them in uh, sometime around the 200 BC, I think. And the story really, I'm sure many of you know this story. It's, it, it's famous. Um, a prophetess comes with nine books to the king and says, I will give you these nine books for one sack of gold. And he says, don't be ridiculous. She says, these books hold the as yet untold secrets of the universe. And he says, don't be ridiculous. And she says, fine. So she lights three of them alight in the town square. And then she goes away for a year. And then she comes back and she says, now it's two sacks of gold for the six books. And he says, okay, but that's like price gouging. Um, and, um, and she says, okay, so she burns another two. And she goes away. And she burns another three. She comes back with three more. Uh, just three left, and they are starting to get anxious, and they say, well, maybe you leave them with us, and you know, we'll see how we feel, but there's certainly no way we're paying you two sacks of gold. And she says, well, it's actually four sacks of gold now. And then she burns two more, and she returns with just the one sack of gold, and they say, we're, we're ready to pay you. We'll pay you the, the four sacks. And she says, well, now the price is eight sacks of gold. And... There's a great, in all the tellings of this, there's a, a, a furious debate. And in the end, they take, they take the one book, the single book, and give her the gold. And in many of the tellings, as she leaves with her sacks of gold, leaving the one book behind, they call after her, this had better be worth it. And in most of the tellings, she turns around and says, of course it is. There is no question but that it's worth it. You should have seen what was burned. And so I left it at that. Thank you for that anecdote. It was absolutely fabulous. And I think you were right to make a decision to do that. I mean, the only other thought I have listening to you is that I've even today have learned from what you've said things that you perhaps think everybody knows about and I think that's key to motivating people to do something. Not Otherwise they get lost, I think, mm. in either despair or a sense of morality, doing the right yeah. thing instead yeah. of the practical thing. But the reason that I wanted to ask your question was that you mentioned that the oceans are noisy, and I'm one of the people who didn't know that. So could you tell us about that? Oh, of course. Uh, the reasons the oceans are noisy now is just that where there used perhaps a hundred years ago to be a very small number of large trawlers and a larger number of quite small and quiet boats. The huge ocean trawlers that are largely fishing and shipping, the, the boom of their engines disturbs the water for a mile around. And, and of course, also um, invasive fishing where uh, line-caught tuna often sounds like it's just a man on a pier 
that's pole court. So if you want to eat tuna, you need pole court because line court is a mile long line dragging along the ocean, hooked with enormous hooks at every so far, and it hooks everything. It hooks vast amounts of fish, but it also hooks dolphins and small whales, and that which is not used tends to be thrown back and dead. So the oceans are littered with corpses. And these are things which, again, these could be legislated against. These are the kinds of things, you know, the question of what can be done. That is not too big a problem. If there were people with sufficient political will to monitor and invest the amount of time and money it would take, if they were not under the power of those vested interests who would ask you to look away and acquiesce, then that could be changed. These are things that can change, and I hope, on my most hopeful days, will change. I guess this is a bit more of a practical question, but when an animal like, sparks your interest, what is the process for working out sort of what you're going to write and where you're going to find the information? Mm. Oh, so that is, that is often the most fun thing. So often an animal, the reason I will do it is someone will send me one fact. So the reason the golden mole exists in, in the essays is that a friend of mine, a brilliant writer called Amy Jeffs, I had been writing these essays for about a month and she said, did you, did you know about this? And she showed me a picture. The golden mole, the only iridescent mammal. And so then what I will do is... Um, because I have an academic background, I, my, immediate, my immediate instinct, you know, we, we call it like an academic mindset once you're an adult, but as a kid we just say dork, um, <laughs> is just to find as many books as I can. So I go for about three or four of the biggest books I can find. They're largely academic books. Um, encyclopedias, Google Scholar, um, usually I'll watch a couple of documentaries and I will amass an enormous unnecessary quantity of notes. Um, and it usually takes me about a month, but I don't do it full time. I'll often do it in evenings or early mornings. And then the actual writing of the thing, again, it takes me too long. I could probably do it faster. Um, takes about a week. Um, so, so each animal is probably all told about a month and a bit, but um, sometimes much, much more because it's very possible to get carried away. And then, and then often also, often the decision to choose things comes from just one amazing fact that you hear about them, and then sometimes you can't actually find enough information, like capybaras, the fact that there is a capybara who was trained by a blind man in Suriname, a farmer, to be a seeing-eye capybara. A capybara is like an enormous guinea pig. Um, and I found that so beautiful, like a man trusted to step out into the dark, led by a capybara, but I couldn't find enough other capybara facts, but they, I'm sure, are there. There's just not that much in the way of, like, full textbooks about capybaras. Um, so, you know, they're on my, like, my maybe shelf. Um, and then the other thing was just wanting to, especially once we knew it would be a book, wanting to think of things that would make, like, glorious pictures. Like, I've been so lucky to work with Talia Baldwin, who is a brilliant artist, um, because we didn't want it to be photographs. We wanted somebody who would be able to capture, like, the personality and wit and vibrancy of, of the living world. And I think that's what Talia does so beautifully. In fact, I'm going to... Mm, this is going to take me one. a little second. I'm going to hold up my favourite one. We happen to have the same favourite one, Talia and I. Um, the narwhal. I just look at, look at him. I mean, I just think he would be worth just for the picture alone. <laughs> I think we should also tell the very curious and academic-minded readers that there's a short bibliography oh, at yes, the back. Oh, yes. So if you, if you want further reading, you can read some of the things that Kate's read, including Australian animals in Victorian London or 
Seeking the Sacred Raven, Politics and Extinction on a Hawaiian Island. It's, it's a very good book. It really, it's genuinely a very good book. Um, you know, they, they, it is, this is the thing. Um, I think a lot about the idea of, of astonishment. John Donne was very into the idea of the necessity, the political the requirement to remain astonished by the fact of humanity. And I think about this a lot. You can't be astonished by something that you know everything about. So the only way to continue being astonished is to continue to be curious and to continue to read and continue to think. So that's why, of all the things that I write, this is my favorite, because it gives me the chance to continue to find things out that other people know, but I didn't. Um, to what extent do you think the sudden drive to save endangered creatures is due to an instinct for sort of self-preservation and selfishness on a sort of large scale, and to what extent do you think it matters if we save these animals? Okay, so how far it's to do with self-preservation? It is, of course, deeply bound up with the need to save humanity. The ecosystems which animals both create and depend on are those on which we depend. We are animals as much bound up in this ecosystem. So I would say to think of it as a selfish thing, we will need to preserve them because we will need to preserve the planet. I wouldn't say that is selfish so much as the only reasonable option that we have based on the knowledge that we now have. And the question of does it matter? I think it's a really interesting question because I think it's one a lot of people think. You know, like, why does it, why does it really matter if there's no novels? It won't make a difference. Um, I think that's partly because of that hierarchy that we have created where we stand at the top. But also, I think, you know, the, the book is an attempt to answer exactly that question, you know, longhand proof. Because a world in which we were alone would be a catastrophe beyond imagining. Um, and so the book tries to be a kind of, not a lecture, but an accumulative proof of, of what it is that we stand to lose. Because if we lose it, it doesn't come back. The finality of it is something I think we are as humans very bad at reckoning with. That which cannot be undone is a thing that we shy away from intellectually. And I wanted the book to offer this sense of, if we lose it, there will just be emptiness. And so the time to hold the line is now. And the time to find hope is now. And the hope that we will need to have is going to have to be an active hope. I think the idea of hope is something one can give one another is over. We will have to manufacture our own hope through action. That's what hope will look like. It will look like the actions that we take. On that note, thank you. Very so good much. place to end. <laughs> you can read Catherine Rundle's pieces in the LRB online archive and buy her books from the London Review Bookshop. Links below this episode. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt.